welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace and Backblaze. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Uh, good to be here. We just had a space experience, you and I. Uh, not shared, but well, sort of shared, sort of similar, yeah. uh, sort of different. And uh, so we're going to have to talk about that on this episode, I think. Parallel space experiences. That's right. They're like, uh, like firing off two... Uh, Gemini capsules, yes, and uh, waving through the window, <laughs> playing harmonica in space. Mm-hmm. Man, that's my favorite part of when we did our Gemini coverage. Just they played uh, Jingle Bells on harmonica. It's sure pretty awesome. Why not? It's the it's the smallest. It's the most compact musical instrument you could bring into space. <laughs> it's it really is true, right? Like, like I got a, in a I got a, a trombone here. No, <laughs> uh, you've seen no. a Gemini capsule. There's no there's no room for any any brass instruments there's no woodwinds in space no i've seen a mercury capsule too uh uh, this week and let me tell you whoo that's it's like being stuffed in the trunk of a car it it is a tin can (laughs) it is like it is a tin can weirdly shaped tin can but we'll get Mm -hmm. uh so we got we'll get to that we will get to our uh nasa social and state of nasa experience and we're talking about the budget uh but first i wanted to start with sierra nevada the Commercial space company has just been given a timetable uh, and sort of approval for the next step for launching to the space station on resupply missions. So if you think back several years ago, the first commercial commercial resupply service uh, called CRS-1, that group of contracts went to SpaceX and Orbital, Orbital ATK. But Sierra Nevada, with their Dream Chaser, it looks like if you left a space shuttle in the dryer too long and it shrank, mm-hmm. right? That's how it it's looks. A little, yeah, a little mini uh, mini space shuttle. Yeah. Yep. It goes on top of rockets. Um, it can actually fit in the fairing of some rockets. Uh, the wings they, fold up yeah, so it's that cool. they can sneak inside the fairing. And then when it's released, it can the wings are, are, are can widen, open up. So it's like a tiny space shuttle and a, and a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're saying. That's it. It's it's yes. When a space shuttle and a bat love each other very much, there's a dream chaser. <laughs> it is Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to stand in the way of love. So their first of six launches would start in 2020, uh, looking at this schedule. And uh, we haven't really talked in detail uh, about this vehicle. I think we should definitely do that at some point. But it can deliver up to 12,000 pounds or 5,500 kilograms of pressurized and unpressurized cargo so if you think about for instance the dragon capsule that spacex has the inside of the capsule they can have pressurized um pressurized space and so that's important for some science stuff has to remain pressurized but then other stuff it doesn't really matter and they kind of uh strap that into the back of the dragon that is unpressurized space and um so they have kind of two options for where to put things and the dream chaser has the same type deal pressurized and unpressurized cargo support and it can return to earth with 4400 pounds or 2000 kilograms of cargo so like the dragon can bring some stuff back uh, so can the dream chaser so this is going to be just another option for nasa to uh, be able to Take up food and clothing and supplies and science and to return samples and, and all of this stuff. So it's just another tool kind of in their in their arsenal right. when it comes to servicing the station. 
Yeah, and a third a third company and a third spacecraft designed that can go to ISS. Um, it one of the things because it's got the pressurized area that means that they can also do things like run experiments that, that they can leave it attached to the space station for a little while and run experiments in the Dream Chaser and then just send those experiments back because it's accessible by the astronauts that are on the ISS. So mm-hmm. it's uh, and it it looks super cool and and that's the reason it does that is that they want it to be they want it to be reusable in a in a different way than a splashdown retrieval. They want to land it. Like the space shuttle, I mean, it's automated, but they they just land it on a on a runway at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Sierra Nevada, they don't have their own rocket, and so they, uh, I think, the at least the first um, two launches will be atop a ULA uh, Atlas V. So they they're they're even partnering with other companies to get this thing into orbit. So um, so yeah, big day for them. This company, I actually met with some of their engineers and one of their executives uh when i was at kennedy in 2015 for a nasa social and um so that's been you know three years now and you know they were kind of walking us through it and obviously very excited about um sort of this again this whole idea so many companies looking at a a reusable spacecraft and not just one and dones and so uh it's a big day for them so that's uh that's exciting yeah all right, so we we uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, if you're listening to the show, you've already seen the Falcon Heavy takeoff, probably. Uh, but, but we did live stream it. That was a lot of fun. So if you hung out with us during that, thank you. It was um, it was it was a, a nice change of pace. Well, I mean, in a normal episode, this would be like. I- I feel like we could do. This is the number one thing, right? Falcon yeah. Heavy launched. It's a huge deal. Yes. Um, I do feel like since we talked about it while it was happening, and it's so big that I think everybody's paid attention to it. But um, the news part's been covered. But there is some stuff I think that we need to probably wrap right. up. And if you want you and, and you you haven't seen it yet, um, there is a uh, there is a B side in the Relay FM B sides feed number thirty one. Uh, that's the audio, or there's actually a video because we live streamed it with our faces, and wh- while you can watch us watching the launch, mm-hmm. and if if you've wondered what we look like when we do this podcast, um, we're not usually as excited as we were <laughs> while that was going on. But there is a YouTube uh, video of yeah. the whole thing, and you can watch it. And uh, it, we'll put it in the show notes. So it's like a little bonus. If you haven't seen it yet, you could do that in, <laughs> I tweeted in podcast a, or YouTube I, form. I tweeted a screenshot of about the time it cleared the tower, and you have your hand over your mouth. And uh-huh. I think I do, too. We're both just like, just like <gasps> yeah, it mm-hmm. was it was a lot of fun to, to, to do that together. Yeah, um, that's bad podcasting form, by the way, when you put your hand over your mouth. I mean, at some point you were eating a sandwich, so I feel like it was a That's little true. more casual well, than normal. They, they delayed the, the – the, I stopped – I finished my sandwich very early on. But, yes, I they delayed the launch right into my lunchtime. That's the, the, how – how cruel of them to do such a thing to me, but that, that's how it is. So it worked, right? I mean, the it did the we we were talking about how they were really just hoping it didn't blow up and ruin the rest of the the launch pad, but yeah, it did. It, it went all the way into orbit, and then they fired the the uh, second stage um, again with all the propellant that they had apparently to send the uh the 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 ballast which in this case was the most uh flashy ballast you could have which is a tesla roadster with a a dummy in it uh and a bunch of cameras 
and uh, but that that was successful, you know, all that, and they landed the two uh, first stages from the sides back at Cape Canaveral, and the the, the landing was almost simultaneous and spectacular, and then the uh, center first stage. Uh, did not it hit the it hit the water hard next to the drone ship and uh, Elon Musk says they know why that happened where they basically did not have enough ignition fluid to light the engines after several engine relights and he said that that fix is pretty obvious <laughs> more ignition fluid so yeah. there you go but um, I saw a bunch of people are like, oh, well, that, you know, one of the first stages crashed, so it's not a success. It's like the, the return of the first stages is not what this was about. <laughs> like this was this was about getting Falcon Heavy up and that worked. And the fact that two out of the three first stages came back is a great bonus. Um, but that's not the, that's not the point. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it. They cleared. I mean, it didn't blow up on the ground. Like I, I, once they cleared the tower, this was a success. And then putting stage two uh, in orbit where it needed to be, um, burning it again. There, there was a report that they overshot a little bit on that burn. Uh, and and uh, but because and this is something I, I do want to talk about because SpaceX. Their language was initially was the the car is going to be in orbit around Mars, and people took that as the car is going to be orbiting Mars, like one of you know, like uh, like one of the several missions, science missions that are going on to the Red Planet now. And that's not what this is. That's not what this right. is doing. It is in orbit around the sun at the, at, at a distance that is approximate to. Mars orbit around the sun and this car is not going to be particularly close to Mars at any point in the distant future. Um, but that's sort of the, the distance away from the sun. So it was a shorthand of saying where it's going to be. And I think they could have done a little clearer job at, at explaining that. I mean, I'm sure you've had the same experience. Like all people have wanted to talk to me about, like if they know I do this show is this because everyone is talking about it. And I think that has everything to do with uh, their, as you said, flashy ballast. But uh, people are like, well, is, is it weird that they're like orbiting a planet? Like, is that going to cause problems later? It's like, no, no, like that's not actually what it's doing. But I think yeah. people just just either misunderstood or SpaceX was vague enough that it left that that door open. But um, well, they keep but, talking about Mars. It's it's SpaceX's fault for talking about Mars, and I get why they're trying to simplify it, but they're also trying to take advantage of cap, capturing. And this is a larger issue too about like why didn't they just put a concrete block in here? Why did they do the car? And I I definitely saw there were a bunch of people who were totally uh, I'm going to make a Muppet Show reference here. They were totally Sam the Eagling it. They were like, <laughs> oh, space is space is sacred. Why are they doing such silly things in outer space? And I kind of just am infuriated by those people because uh, they're like, oh, yes, we live in a world where a billionaire can send a car into space. That's a perfectly good car that could be driven by somebody. Come on. Like, 
Yes, it's showmanship. Yes, it's a gimmick. But you can see that people who are not excited by the the uh, incredible heavy lifting capacity of this and how it means that it gives us access to the outer solar system for various uh, you know probe missions in the future, and it makes it, it gives access to Mars to some uh, some kinds of uh, of probes in the future. I mean, we've got lots of things that come out of it. A lot of people don't care about that, but. There was a red sports car with an astronaut dummy sitting in the driver's seat with his hand on, with his arm on the win, window, <laughs> um, live with the Earth behind him, right? Like that, that made an impact, and and Definitely. that's the PR side. We talk about this on the show a lot, like NASA and space in general. You know, outreach and making people care about what's going on in space is an incredibly important part of what they do, because if people don't care about space, then they won't get the funding. And without government funding, it's a lot harder for anybody. Like even the commercial space things that are going on right now, they're all funded by the government. They're commercial entities where that are that have a huge amount of inf- influx of money. It's not all. It's also people launching satellites and stuff, but huge amounts of it. The whole commercial crew program, the whole commercial ISS uh, resupply program, that's all about taking government money. So you want the public to be excited about this stuff. And that's what the that's what the Spaceman is all about. It's great. The Starman, sorry. David Bowie reference. They played the David Bowie stuff. It, like, it was all coordinated. It all, I, I think, was effective. Uh, this was a test mission paid for entirely by SpaceX ex- itself. So, because they thought it was going to blow up. So I'm okay with it. I think it served this purpose. But the Mars thing bu- is the thing that bugs me because that's misleading. Like that, they're trying to make it seem like they sent this car to Mars. And the truth is they didn't, they could have maybe done that if they had wanted to wait and hit a particular launch window. But it kind of wasn't the point. They just wanted to show the uh, the capacity of the Falcon Heavy. Right. And so they could just put it in, in, a, in a, a trajectory that will take it out beyond Mars's orbit, as it turns out. And then it'll kind of come back to around where Earth's orbit is. But it's not actually orbiting either Mars or Earth. It's just kind of floating out there in space for billions of years. Yeah. So that's my, that's my rant. No, no, it's good, <laughs> and I agree with I agree with all of it. You and I are, on the, are definitely the same page there. Um, Sam so the, the Eagle, I don't want to don't write in Sam the Eagle. I don't want to. I don't want to hear about the the. Was, let's make space. Space needs to be less fun. We need fewer people interested in space. I, that's a really weird argument, and yet I saw that from people who say they're space enthusiasts, and I just I find that like you don't have to love Elon Musk and 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 the fact that he does fib. <laughs> and stretch the truth a lot um you know and we joke about it on this show but uh, this did capture the imagination of regular people totally and that needs to happen like that's the problem with a lack of public support for space stuff is that there isn't enough isn't enough of pictures of pluto and pictures of jupiter and and sports cars shot in outer space we need we need more of that to capture people's attention yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So I think it's worth talking about the future of this rocket a little bit. You know, this this vehicle is is here now, but I think we even talked about this on the live stream a little bit. If the BFR becomes a thing, um, even if you factor in the Elon Musk timetables, this rocket has a limited shelf life that at some point the BFR is going to vastly surpass it. 
Uh, Musk even mentioned in a couple of different interviews I saw that they may actually skip over rating the Falcon Heavy for for crude use and that they may just do that for the Falcon 9 for a commercial crew, which they're in the process of, and then having the BFR rated for, for human use. Um, but it's not to say there's not there aren't uses for it. They're going to fly it again later this year. I think they have a, cu- a couple of customers lined up. Um, a big step is going to be uh, military certification. So part of the the flight last week is a was that six hour coasting phase before they they relit the second stage. And part of that, um, some of that stuff is important for like Air Force. Uh, satellite placement and some other things. And so that's kind of where they're heading in the immediate future with it is getting it certified for military use. So they have a wider range of customers who will uh, potentially choose this if they need a little more power or they have something heavier than the Falcon 9 can do. Um, But I just, I can't help but think that if the BFR becomes a thing, then you know, this rocket is really just a stepping stone to that, and it's not going to see the sort of longevity that the Falcon 9 has. Yeah, and on the live stream, I expressed my skepticism. Like, I feel like, yes, if SpaceX is right with its BFR calendar, then why would you certify Falcon Heavy? Because in the end, you're just going to use BFR. Although even then, like, the cost of BFR, I mean, who knows? And 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 then, of course, there's just, like, the issue of is it going to make the uh, the dates and SpaceX has never made the dates like SpaceX has always said we'll do it at this point and then it slips three three years right that just yeah. is and that's just how it is and that's not saying they're doing a bad job it's just I think it's saying they're doing a bad job of estimating when they're going to be ready yes. but it, you know <laughs> the whole space industry as we've seen with what's going on with uh, with NASA with uh with the stuff that nasa's doing that's also slipping a lot so this is not just endemic to to spacex it's it's happening in a lot of the space stuff but um that makes me think all right you know if there's an opportunity qualifying these these things for human flight is hard because you don't want them to blow up and kill people so it's pretty basic like that is what you have to prove um but having that this tool in in your arsenal like i i think it depends honestly it's going to depend on the money i think that's what it's going to come down to is if the money if if spacex thinks that they can get money from the us government let's say to send people to the moon or lunar orbit with falcon heavy then and that they're they're more likely to do that than than bfr that they may not actually uh, need BFR or BFR is too far out, then I think they'll try to do it because they'll have a reason to do it. But I think there's also this, uh, that we're, they're at an interesting place now where they're like, we might not need to because all of the things that people would pay us for that are lifting a lot of stuff and people too far away, uh, that, that all that work is going to end up going to BFR. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know because then you're getting into the details of like where you need to go and how much you're trying to lift and whether you need BFR or whether Falcon Heavy is enough. So we'll have to we'll have to see that. But it is an interesting idea that, you know, Falcon Heavy is let's take Falcon 9 and and stick a couple on the sides to make it a bigger rocket. And it is now the biggest lifting vehicle that's active. But BFR is going to just be way more. So um 
you know, that that's the question is, are they going to be able to get that that new hardware online faster? And has that made this sort of interim step of Falcon Heavy irrelevant? I My gut feeling is that BFR is going to take way longer than they think, and therefore Falcon Heavy is going to be relevant. But, you know, m- maybe they will nail it with BFR. Maybe. Yeah. Check back in in uh, four to six years. Yeah, that's that's right. Well, we were saying on the stream, you know, some of the space journalists we follow um, were saying about how there was somebody. I think it might have been Miriam Kramer who said that um, that when she started in in 2013, um, the you know, Falcon Heavy was about to launch. <laughs> and 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 so it's like her whole career as a space journalist has been sort of like leading up to the moment where Falcon Heavy went up. But that also means that it had been like five years of, no, 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 it's going to launch and then got delayed and delayed and delayed. But, but it's here now. And again, as much as we give uh, some grief to SpaceX and Elon Musk for uh, for not meeting their deadlines, they have managed to get what they've been working on to to work it just has taken longer than they anticipated and falcon heavy is a huge accomplishment because it does open up i i think um one of the things that i that struck me on that day was that uh the among the congratulations to spacex was alan stern the guy who is the principal investigator for new horizons which went to pluto and is now going off to some other as yet boringly named um i don't think we've gotten a whether the peanut thing is going to happen or not yet, another Kuiper Belt object. But he was super excited about this. And the reason is that with Falcon Heavy, you could theoretically build another Pluto mission and fire it off straight to Pluto, which means it would get there in a couple of years instead of in like eight years, which is what they had to do with New Horizons, where they had to send it past many, many planets in order to get enough speed to get out to Pluto. And so for people like that who want to explore the outer solar system, this is really exciting because it gives them another potential tool to get their stuff out there and out there faster. Because if you're a scientist and you're building a mission and you look at it and say, wow, well, I can build this mission, but by the time it gets there, I'll be retired and hopefully still alive. Or um, I can get it there in five years or something like that. Like It can make a huge difference. So that that's one of the reasons that this is really um, is really exciting for a lot of people who are doing planetary science too, potentially. All right, so let's uh, let's move into our, our our parallel space explorations. But first, mm. I want to tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code Liftoff at checkout to get ten percent off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. They let you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name that you can get right within their UI. You don't have to go somewhere else. Uh, award-winning templates that are all responsive, so look great on all sorts of devices, and much more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you need a portfolio to show off your work. Maybe you want to be like Jason and become a world-famous blogger. Hello. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. There are no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. And if you do need help, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. It's really great. Like I said, you can easily and quickly grab a unique domain name and all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed. We use Squarespace at Relay for our store and our blog. 
just today, actually, uh, we're working on a blog post or something we're announcing uh, later this week. And someone else had gone there and written it, and I was going there and editing a few things and adding a picture and dragging things around. It's all very, very easy to do. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card by going to squarespace.com. And when you do to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for LIFTOFF. We thank Squarespace for supporting LIFTOFF and FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, so we mm-hmm. uh, we both on uh, on Monday took place took part of a NASA social event, and if you're not familiar with these, um, they seem to be going on just like all the time. Yeah. Na- if NASA has um, an event, so we we were part of one that was actually like NASA. Like I think almost every center had these, but sometimes it's just it's just one place. So you know, if there if there's a test firing at Stennis. There may be one, or there was one in Colorado a couple of weeks ago for something else, or like the one I went to in 2015 uh, to go see a launch at uh, at the Cape. And basically, it's a they open it up and you can apply. And if you have a social following, you have a project you're working on uh, that NASA likes or that they think would be uh, sort of mutually beneficial, uh, you get to go and hang out at NASA for a day or two. And um, and this one, like I said, was around the state of NASA, which we're going to get into that towards the end of the show about the that event itself. Um, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about our experiences this time. And I, I know, Jason, you were at Ames, where you have been before. Um, but kind of what did y'all's group uh, do on Monday? Well, the... Um the first thing is we met in the uh, in the visitor center, which I'd actually never been in before, which is exciting um, because it's got it does have a mercury capsule. It has one that was a uh, bef- it was not uh, nobody was in it, but it was one of those early test flights where they shot it up and it was in uh, it was not in orbit. It was just one of those uh, things, very much like Alan Shepard, where it was a suborbital flight to test it out. And they have one of those capsules there, which was hilarious because I'm almost taller than it is. Um, They're really it, small. <laughs> it is uh, just, just, there's just screws, you know, just like Phillips had screws with washers screwed into it. It's definitely charred from from uh, atmospheric friction, but uh, it's just like a tin can. It's 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 amazing how rudimentary it is and also how incredibly small it is. It is it is unbelievable how small it is. You think like, oh, well, they say it's small, but it's probably big on the outside. And then there's just a small human space. Like, no, it's incredibly small. So that was fun. I hadn't seen that before. They have some fun educational stuff there. They have a moon rock. Only moon rock I'd ever uh, seen was at the Smithsonian at the Air and Space Museum, where they have this super smooth moon rock because you can touch it, but it's been worn down by everybody else's fingers. So it's just like this smooth bump that is from the moon, but this was like a big chunk of um, lunar basalt. That was pretty cool. And then uh, we watched the state of NASA address, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, which came to us live from where you were. So I actually managed to spot your shirt. (laughs) I was there too. I didn't just send my shirt. Yeah, that's right. But I couldn't, I couldn't really see the rest of you, but I could pick out your shirt. I think I recognize the shirt. So I picked that shirt out. I was like, that that looks like a Stephen shirt. And and I, I triangulated your photos and it was totally you. So not that I was spying on you or anything. It was just exciting that you were actually <laughs> we're, at the event. Just be paying attention, man. Not trying to find me. <laughs> yeah, well, they, 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 you know, they cut back and forth. And there's a lot of government nonsense. Anyway, oh, yeah. um, 
So what do we do? We got a we got a presentation f- about uh, uh, something called the um, Lunar Resource Prospector Project, which they're working on at NASA Ames. The idea there is they're trying to build a a four wheeled rover uh, to go to the moon, and it, and very clearly they knew when they set up sort of what we were doing that. Um, there's this combination of like the politics and the PR angle of this. They knew that the budget that was going to come out was going to be talking a lot about the moon and they wanted, or at least they bet if they didn't know they, they made, made that bet. And so they emphasized a bunch of moon stuff that was going on at NASA Ames. So resource prospector is this four wheeled rover intended to go to the moon, to the polar regions and look for water. Now, for those who don't know, uh, the moon is bone dry, except it turns out that in at the poles in deep craters, there are areas where they're permanently shadowed. Permanently shadowed regions is what they call them. And we found out uh, the LCROSS mission, uh, which basically took its um, its its booster with it to the moon and then flung the booster down into one of those craters and measured the debris that got kicked up by the crashing of the uh, of the of the um large tank and engine um that there was water so there's there's water ice and a bunch of other interesting stuff that's evaporated everywhere else on the moon but there should be tons and tons and tons of it at the polar regions in these in these craters so how do you get at them? And how do you know, you know, confirm more about what's what's there? And the answer is this rover, the resource prospector. So it's got four wheels, not like six, like a lot of the Mars rovers where it's sort of six inline wheels. And the reason for that is they're four sort of independently springed wheels. And it lets them do some really interesting maneuvers. They've done a bunch of tests um, in simulated lunar regolith, like the, the moon dust about like how to get around um, because it's possible that the permanently shadowed regions will be um, one, one possibility is it's like a skating rink and they're, they're going to slip and slide. But the other more kind of intriguing and weird possibility is that the, uh, in those craters, there's nothing but downy fluff as they call it, which is the idea that um, you might not have a solid surface uh, that's been compacted over time by heating and cooling. It's just always permanently 20 or 30 degrees above uh, above absolute zero. It's actually colder than at Pluto in these craters because they never see the sun. Um, and if that was true, you might just sort of like, it, it might be like quicksand. You might just sink down in it. And the, the four-wheel rover can do some amazing maneuvers. They showed us a video of it. Like it can kind of swim. It can actually kind of like use its two front wheels and sort of like pulsate them and and move them like it's like it's dog paddling a little bit. Oh wow! And the, the, so the idea there is it's way more maneuverable in weird circumstances because it's got these four independently controlled wheels that can actually be pivoted and stuff. So you can almost use them like legs um, to a certain degree. Um, so the idea there is it will, and it's at the poles, right? So it's it's a, such a weird uh, little thing. It looks like a Mars rover, like basically in that it's like a little skateboard but um it's um it's got a a solar panel that but it's not like it can't have the solar panel like on its back like so many of these uh, other rovers can because it's at the pole it it basically the solar panel is almost like a sandwich board (laughs) it like holds it up (laughs) in front of it because Uh, because the sun is at this extreme angle it's right at the horizon so it has to kind of like hold the the uh the solar panel out 
gas up, fuel up its because it's entirely solar powered. It uh, it it uses that, and then it tucks that away, and it rolls into the crater. Now, again, very close to absolute zero in there. So it has to turn on a heater. It's got to turn on its lights, and it can't stay very long, or it'll lose power. So it sort of slides in. Hopefully, doesn't drown in the downy fluff. Extends a uh, like a drill and sucks up a bunch of material, and then immediately pops back out into the sunlight, recharges, warms up, and then um, analyzes what it found. So it's this kind of harrowing little adventure into the permanently shadowed region because it's it's apparently a, quite an unpleasant place to be if you're a solar-powered rover. Um, and uh, yeah, so they've tested it around. They tested it in Houston. They brought in JPL as independent reviewers of it because the JPL people have uh, all the history with the Mars rovers down in Pasadena at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, and so that's all going on. Um, and they're and they're doing you know they're doing tests. I think they're in phase B. So they're they're trying to. Uh, figure out the next step for this, which is fascinating because we've been talking about commercial operations in Earth orbit, right? Like commercial operations to the International Space Station. Yeah, it sounds to me like in going on in the background. You know, they had the Lunar X Prize, which nobody claimed, where they were trying to land things on the moon from in, from commercial entities. It sounds to me though that that is the next phase of commercial space. And nobody's really ready to talk about it yet, but I got the distinct impression that it's happening in the background because the whole resource prospector idea is not to build a lander. They're going to build the rover, and the whole plan is they will pay a commercial entity to land them. So this is another part of uh, part of the expansion into more lunar research that the government wants to do and NASA wants to do over the next decade is probably going to have a commercial component where they're going to give incentives to companies to build lunar landing packages so that they don't have to build the lander. All they have to do is build a rover and say, get us to the ground, essentially. So this is not designed with... Um, with a component that gets them down onto the lunar surface. They're going to let somebody else do that, which is at one time, in one sense, disappointing because I'm like, oh, come on. I want you to tell tell me that this whole mission is ready to go and it's going to be launching in a few years. And, and they're not doing that. On the other hand, it's really kind of intriguing. Like, that's an interesting idea that you might actually get access for these missions to the moon's surface through some company that is working on you know, a lunar landing platform Mm -hmm. that's maybe a little more generic that can be adapted to individual missions. So it was pretty cool. Um, After that, we went to uh, their lunar lab where they actually have been doing a lot of testing for these polar missions. Um, About 10 years ago, they had a whole like robot competition that was all about like learning about moving around on the lunar surface. And for that, they ordered up, and you can't, you know, this is a thing only NASA can do. They ordered up seven tons of fake lunar surface dirt basically <laughs> they call it they call it a lunar uh simulant it's a regolith simulant um and and so they have that um 
and, and so they basically got a big sandbox of of lunar dust, and it is like more like talcum powder. They didn't let us touch it. It's actually really bad for you, and if you breathe it in your lungs, it's like asbestos. It's fine particles. It's but but because they have it, they can test how rovers work on it. They can test ways of like cleaning it off. So if you have a moon base, like how do you clean off your stuff so that you're not um, choking when you're inside? Um, because you've got to like step out of your spacesuit and all of that. Um, so they have this sandbox of, of lunar material, fake lunar material. And, uh, and they had to do a whole thing about like, um, can we do 3d vision of our probes at the, at the, uh, at the lunar poles? Because on Mars, everything is pretty well lit. But at, at the, on the lunar surface, it's a very different, it's a low contrast thing. Um, cause the, the moon is just kind of gray. Um, the regolith reflects light. It's a little bit like a light reflector on a bike or a street sign. Um, and as a result, they showed us like a, a 3d, uh, you know, stereo imaging from a Mars Rover and then a stereo imaging on the lunar surface. And one of them is this highly contoured map. And the other one's just a white background it's just like white there's just yeah. like it's very hard to get and you and, and very hard to drive if you can't get 3d kind of readings and, and depth readings so they spend a lot of time in this lab with lights like down low lights so you get these extreme shadows because again that's where the light would be coming from on the poles and they tried to work out what do we need to do with this probe in order to get that um that that vision uh that is necessary to uh, move around on the surface and advances in uh the way that image processing works now with digital camera kind of stuff uh to get higher dynamic range in images because you have to have the these incredible dark points and these incredibly bright points and you have to see and the the short version of it is they think they can do it like they figured out how to do it but but that lunar lab was really cool because not only do they have this giant sandbox of um fake lunar material um, and the lights make it I mean, in the box. It totally looks like you're on the moon, like in the box. They've got a fake little fake crater <laughs> um, and made by something. It's like a six, six feet, six feet wide and made by it would have been a meteorite the size of a golf ball. Basically, would make a crater that size. They said uh, it was very, very fun. And where else do you see a lunar surface simulator than at a NASA center? So that, cool. the, that all the moon stuff was really great. Um, and then, you know, I, I'd say that was the, that was the best of it. In the afternoon we did a, uh, we, we broke up for like different, uh, different little submissions from in four groups and mine did something that I may have actually talked about on this show two years ago when I went down there, which is they are continuing their work on building essentially an air traffic control system for drones. So that's the aeronautics part of NASA. But as a tech person, I thought that was really cool. The idea that they're, and we, we played around with like in Google maps and made these KML files and then sort of submitted them to their, their, their server. Um, but basically they're working with everybody who's involved with building drones and flying drones. Um, Amazon, uh, is a good example of that, but there are lots of others and, uh, Google as well in order to build a system where they all talk to one another, there's a, they're going to come up with a standard for everybody to kind of interchange reservations of airspace where they can say, I'm going to fly here during this period at this altitude. Um, and the system goes, okay. And then you can fly there. And if somebody else tries to fly there, they'll be like, mm -mm, there's somebody there. You need to, you need to come up with a different flight plan. And in, you know, 
it's talking about the future now, but like in five or 10 years, you need this. Uh, if you're going to have a bunch of commercial drones that are not line of sight, that are delivering packages or whatever they're doing or observing, uh, you know, fires or whatever they're doing. So um, they're going to hand that all off to the uh, FAA uh, in 2020, I think, at which point this group is apparently going to convert and start to look at um, personal aircraft, like drone taxis, like flying cars, basically. Um, because they think they can use the same principles on the flying cars <laughs> as they do on uh, these on these drones, so that's pretty cool from a like a, a an aeronautics standpoint. So that was that was basically it. That was that was a lot of moon stuff, and then my group got to got to spend some time in the lab with the uh, with the people who are building the uh, the future drone air traffic control system, which will not involve people at the FAA approving things. It's, it's basically a, it's like, uh, the principles of the internet to, to basically say, Hey, everybody, I'm flying here. And then everybody else just sort of knows not to go there. And, uh, if that system works well, then the, the companies can all kind of come up with their own user interfaces and their own systems of flying the drones. And, and that's way better than having like one government mandated, um, user interface for everything. So yeah, that's mine. That's cool. Uh, so I went to Marshall as I, as I spoke about on the last episode. I uh, applied to Stennis and then later Marshall. They opened that up a little bit later, um, and I ended up going to Marshall really just for travel time. It's still like a three and a half hour drive, so I drove down Sunday night and drove back on Tuesday. Just a couple of days away. Uh, I had not been. I've been to Huntsville just passing through, and of course you see the giant Saturn V. Uh, out on the highway, uh, and, I, and I will get to that. But um, at Marshall, uh, NASA does several things. So Marshall is sort of the um, a lot of like the infrastructure for NASA runs through Marshall. So a lot of like the the sort of internal IT and communications and stuff are handled there. Um, but then there's also a lot of support for the uh, International Space Station. So a lot of uh, a lot of the payload side of things, a lot of the a lot of the rack management and and that sort of sort of thing um, is managed there. So we got to see uh, a couple of different mock-ups of the space station that they use for not for training astronauts. In fact, astronauts don't come through Marshall, but training people who are working on the procedures and the policies and and sort of that side of things. Uh, so got to walk into a couple of mock-ups, and a lot of that stuff is actually maintained by like local like high school student interns who are um, coming in and like working on a, on a school project and maybe their project will be, you know, just a CERNET panel or like upgrading the lighting or something like that. So there's a lot of community involvement and student involvement in that lab, which is, uh, which is uh, pretty neat. Actually. I like that, they, that there's opportunities for uh, students who want to get involved. We saw um, uh, a lab where they're working on um like the like the human design element. So this team works on making sure that uh, the the actual humans, the actual astronauts, are equipped with the tools they need and the processes they need to perform as efficiently as possible. So looking at things like um, you know little things like down to like fasteners and buttons. Like if you're in microgravity, you can't necessarily flip the switch like you can 
here on earth because you're going to move it and you're going to move and not the switch. So like even like little design elements like that. And uh, we got to walk through some mock-ups of what used to be called the deep space gateway. It has a longer and worse name now, but uh, this, this smaller space station that would be in cislunar space, uh, they are building mock-ups of what that may be like. Uh, if they fly it on the SLS, the diameter can be enormous. Um, and it's laid on its side with like staircases and stuff. Obviously, you don't need any of that stuff in space. Um, but it was three stories of, you know, uh, workspace and utility rooms. And they had uh, a kitchen and they had an exercise room and they had crew quarters all mocked up. Again, with the idea of how how will um, actual like human beings be able to to work and to uh, to live in this in this space for multi years at a time, right? Either if it's the deep space gateway, the idea too is that this habitat would be used to uh, go to Mars and come back, so you could be in there three years or more. And all of these like little design decisions that have to be made, a lot of that goes through uh, a lot of that goes through Marshall. But I think the most impressive thing I saw was a giant test stand. So if you think about the SLS, the the center core, um, the bottom part of it is a big fuel tank, a big orange fuel tank. And at the bottom of that are going to be um, a set of RS-25 motors, the old uh, motors from the, the, the back of the space shuttle. And they're being upgraded and being tested at Stennis. But what Marshall is doing is testing the structure that the engine's attached to. So there's basically a collar at the bottom of the fuel tank and these motors get attached to that. And so that thing has to take an unbelievable amount of beating during launch because all this force from these motors gets transferred up into the stack through this ring. And they have a giant, and this thing was like six stories tall in this giant high bay. And this team, their job is to, test what has been designed and built. So they have a real test article. Uh, this particular article that is at Marshall now is not going to be in flight, but it is built for testing. And they basically build a machine to simulate the forces that will be um, acted upon this piece, We're both at launch and at max Q in various stages. And then they go up to 1.4 times greater uh, than the amount of force it will see kind of in the worst case scenario. And that number is important because that's the number that means that that hardware has been rated for crewed flights. So it's 1.4 times the force it would see at launch, for instance. And if it's still okay then, and they say that it's safe for crew use, at least for parts like this. And this particular uh, engine mount and adapter, they actually it hit 1.4 just fine. They wouldn't tell us the number at which it started to break down, but they said it was remarkably higher than anticipated. And so they basically met all their testing and then they said, well, we need to know where this thing begins to break down. And um, I got the impression that whatever number that hit of, of uh, you know, the, the times, the amount of force it would see at launch, whatever that number is, really surprised all of them. Um so there's this whole team, and Marshall does a lot of this. They do a lot of uh, testing of SLS hardware. So just actually in a couple of weeks, um, they have another part coming in. So in the high bay next door, which actually both of these high bays uh, were built for the Saturn V 
for testing of its components. And so they have all these, like, um, the floor, I think they said it's like 24 feet of concrete de- tied into bedrock. And there are these huge steel rods that go through it. So if you look on the floor, you don't notice it at first, but then you start to see them. There, there's a grid of steel plates, like a little round, like the, you know, the diameter of a tennis ball on a grid on the floor. And so they can tie into these and the amount of force that can go through these steel pieces is just unbelievable. So they tie into these and they have another test coming up, uh, coming up in March. So really fascinating stuff to see the SLS begin to come together. And, and really what I walked away with was that the SLS is their, their current, date for their em1 flight which would be uncrewed the first flight of the rocket itself is scheduled for december 2019 i don't know if they'll hit that or not but i think this this program is much further along than i had realized it was um and for me that really hit home uh one of the last things we saw was it's at the top of the rocket it it's a um we we talked a little while ago about the the SpaceX, the Dragon, where it has pressure, pressurized and unpressurized cargo space. So Orion is kind of the same in that it has an adapter on the bottom side of the capsule that once the rocket separates, it's open to the outside. And that piece, that flight hardware that will fly on EM-1, uh, is at Marshall. And we got to walk up on a walkway over it, and they warned us very sternly not to, to stick our, photo, our phones over the edge, because if you drop it into that thing, it's real bad news. And... So this thing is built and done. It's actually getting ready to go to Kennedy in the next couple of weeks. And it's um, it was kind of remarkable to, to be looking at this piece, you know, and, and on the giant stack of things. I mean, this thing was maybe six feet tall. It's not a real big piece, but it is going to go to space, which was cool. But the thing that I really um, I really walked away from uh, talking, actually talked to the program manager for a little while directly, is that I took a picture of it from above and I noticed that there were signatures all the way around the inside of it. And this thing is actually pretty huh. cool. They're going to launch 13 CubeSats. So EM-1, they're going to test the rocket, test the Orion capsule again. But they're going to have 13 secondary payloads of these CubeSats. And they sit around the outside of this ring. And they're going to kind of eject them into space one at a time on their way out. And uh, it's actually very, I think, very clever. You have the space that's open to the outside. Um, and this gives it... Um, purpose beyond just a structural piece but there's signatures all the way around it and so i asked him i said and i kind of knew the answer but i was like you know who who signed it and it was the engineers who designed it it was the technicians that built it it was the the team that tested it um and i just uh you know it was it was very kind of put a a face on this because i think it's easy for it's easy for me at least and we i talked this way in our sls episode i've talked about it this way recently that I'm not completely sold that the SLS is the, the best thing NASA could be doing right now. And we're going to get into that with the budget in a second. Um, but the reality is they're very far into it. Uh, they're going to launch it the end of next year, hopefully. And there are a lot of jobs and a lot of people. It is a huge program. And to see that just from the testing perspective in Marshall was pretty eye opening. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, it is so fun to see the details of this work that is going on where we see the big picture, but we don't necessarily see the people and the all of the, not necessarily small, but smaller than the, the ultimate big picture that has to go in 
to anything for it to come to fruition like that. I mean, like, you know, talking with these engineers who are designing switches, right? And one thing they do is if you are a technician putting the rocket together in Kennedy, they even think about if you got to reach in and torque a bolt, is there room for your hand, let alone your tool, to reach it, right? Is there room for the tool to make its pass? Like, it's not just the big, fancy, like, rocket science, like, how do the engines work? How how does the math work? But it's all the way down to if we use this sort of washer versus this sort of washer, what are the pros and cons? Um, And they spoke a lot about, you know, systems engineering, that it became very quickly apparent in the early days that these vehicles were too complex for one person to know everything about them, right? That may have been true for, like, you know, some of the early, you know, Redstone flights and that sort of thing. But at the time they were at Apollo... NASA had to build a system for the systems uh, and that in that, when that is working properly, you have the, the opportunity. So if you're in flight control and you ask your team or another team something and they answer it, um, you need that trust that, that they know what they're talking about, even though you may have no idea what they're talking about. And that all of that is now um, that that was true in the shuttle era, but the shuttles were sort of a very different mindset and once they were built, it was really just about management. And so some of that faded away. But now building this new vehicle, even though it is a lot of remix of shuttle parts, it it is putting those pieces back in place at NASA, that you have a lot of teams working on a lot of different things. And NASA itself, its job is to make sure that all these independent systems are coordinated and to, to be able to see you know, the stuff that's going on across all these centers and how they work together and how they are pushing towards this goal of a launch in 2019. Um, like I said, it was, it was real eye-opening to see just how far down that road they are. It's great. It is. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, if you are interested in doing one of these, like throw your hat in the ring. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Uh, you get to hang out with space nerds all day. Like it was one of the few places where I tell introduce myself and say that I own a podcast network and people know what that is. Like that was <laughs> kind of cool. Met uh, some listeners, I should say, like met some listeners. Um, Monday night, went out with some people. That was a lot of fun. Um, but it's just a real unique time to kind of see behind the curtain at NASA. And if it's for a launch, like you should totally see a launch. But I'm really glad I'm down, I've now done two very different ones because at Kennedy, like we saw the launch and it didn't go so well. And we saw kind of the, the first day after that. But to see like the day to day, like what's going on in these centers was was really pretty fascinating. Yeah, sounds great. I I uh, I heartily endorse this. This was my third, and um, they're they're easier to get into than you would think. You do not need a podcast. You do not need tens of thousands of Twitter followers. Um, it's good if you've got something where you can say like, here's my social media and I have people who follow me, but I, I got the impression from the people who were in mine that, that, you know, that a lot of them were just, you know, regular people enthusiastic about space and they want them to spread the word. So, um, it might be, there might be ones that are harder and easier to get into, but I would say you, you, you should try to apply to one that's near you. Also, we had, if you're really into it, we had somebody from New York at ours who she just decided to apply to ones in California because she wanted to, to get out of the, the winter for a couple of days. And she got accepted to ours and flew out to San Francisco from New York for yeah. a couple of days to go to it. So there's we that had people too. from all over. It was, it was cool. And like some of us were in media, but I mean, ours actually had like two lib- like kit, like student librarians. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some, uh, we had one woman I talked to for a while. She has a, 
a YouTube video and a blog where she breaks down physics for like educa- like educational, like elementary school kids. And she open sources all of it so teachers can use it and remix it. Like all sorts of people, all sorts of things. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's very interesting to talk to people who are working in all different fields but have this sort of um, uh, commonality. I should, I should say real quickly, and we're going to move on. Um, because I was in Huntsville, we got to see the Space and Rocket Center as well. So it's my second Saturn V I've seen. Mm. Um, the second one took my breath away just as much as the first one did. It is just an incredible, incredible thing to, to stand under it. Um, Huntsville has the vertical Saturn V outside. That's just a, a shell, basically. They have a real one. There's actually a test article. Um, so they actually tell you when you walk in the building to like breathe in deeply, and you can still, like, it still smells like fuel and fire. It's very fascinating that it's hung around so long. I don't think that was a, a mind trick. It may have been a mind trick. Um, so we got to see the Space and Rocket Center. We got to play with some Space Camp stuff, which was really cool. Uh, I did not get to do Space Camp as a kid, but now I really wish I had. And I think that uh, if my kids are interested in it, I would definitely send them. Uh, so we got to, to meet with some of those people who, who run that as well. Um, it's always interesting because I, you know, you get they they want to they want to show you what they're doing, and they want to you know have you share that with your fo- your following, and so it's all um, it's just all really interesting and, and fun. So, anyways, we should move on. We should yeah, I think move on. I think so. We we have uh, a little more to talk about. Uh, we actually have a lot more to talk about, but we've been so long already. This is a packed show. This could be two shows, but we've got a lot to get through. We have one more thing to talk about, which is the NASA budget. Oh, yeah. But before we do that, I will tell you about our other sponsor in this episode. This episode of Liftoff brought to you in part by Backblaze. Backblaze is the unlimited cloud backup for Macs and PCs that starts at just $5 a month. You can sign up for a 15-day free trial with no credit card required at backblaze.com slash liftoff. You've probably heard about Backblaze before. Um, you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, I should get around to backing up my stuff soon. You should. And you say that, <laughs> and then it never happens. $5 a month and what happens is the data on your computer is backed up to the cloud, which means that even if you have a local backup, a time machine backup, something like that, you know what's going to happen? If your house burns down or floods or any other disaster, an earthquake, if you live out here, um, you know what's going to happen? Your computer and your backup drive are going to be destroyed. And where's your data then? The answer is you back up to the cloud. You might want to do a local backup too, but you got to back up to the cloud. It makes all your data accessible wherever you go, and it's safe in the case of a disaster, which is a huge deal. That's why you do backups. And for $5 a month, you can get that with Backblaze. It will back up your documents, your music, your photos, your videos, your drawings, your projects, anything that you need to save it will save it for you. And that gives you access to it anywhere in the world, even from your phone. If you're traveling and you're like, ah, I had a file on my computer and I didn't bring it with me and I need it. Guess what? It's in your backup. So you use their phone app to look in your backup and find that file that got backed up and pull it out. I've done that more than once. Incredibly valuable, like bonus to all of this is having access to that backup when you're traveling. You can restore one file. You can restore everything. They will even ship you a hard drive with all your data on it if you're in a desperate need of getting everything back as quickly as you can. 
Backblaze has restored over 28 billion files. That's an average of a million files per hour. No additional wow. charges, no gimmicks. $5 a month for full backups for your computer. And Liftoff listeners will get that 15-day free trial just by going to backblaze.com slash liftoff. Go there. Do it. Seriously, you do not want to just have your data backed up in devices in your house because that's not giving you the redundancy that you need in case of a disaster. Backblaze.com slash liftoff. It'll help support the show. They'll know where you came from and you'll get the 15-day free trial. Thanks, Backblaze, for supporting Liftoff. All right. So the, the reason we were doing this is that Monday was the annual State of NASA event where the administrator or the acting administrator... Uh, this year, gets on stage, talks about the budget, or the budget proposal, I should say. So it's to go through Congress. We'll talk about that. Congress may add things or change things. And it's sort of a, uh, this is where the agency is is going. And there's, there's some links in the show notes to some of the budgetary stuff. The full budget came out this morning. It's like 700 pages. Please don't read that. There's some nice overviews in the show, in the, in the show, the show notes. And so that actually happened at Marshall. So I was in like the fourth or fifth row back. And then it was simulcast to all the other centers. And you could watch it online yeah. at NASA TV as well. So a big press event. I think sort of the TLDR this year is that, well, the budget is $19.9 billion. It's up $400 million. But the, the TLDR is the administration wants to, to lead the way back to the moon and to dominate in cis lunar space with a focus on crewed flights and utilizing partnerships with with commercial companies. And a lot of this language from Robert Lightfoot, the acting administrator, uh, felt very familiar if you've been paying attention to what the National Space Council is doing, led by Mike Pence. A focus on the the national, the, the first letter in NASA, leading in space, bolstering the economy, giving Americans something to be proud of for their country. A lot of that sort of um, nation-focused speak we've been seeing out of the administration. So I don't think any of that was a surprise. Um, we we cover this when it happened, but the NSC asked Lightfoot and NASA to embark on a 45-day study of what a shift from the journey to Mars to a focus on the moon, uh, what that would mean and how that would look. Uh, so Lightfoot talked through that a little bit and I don't know I still don't know a couple days later if this is me projecting into what was happening (laughs) but it felt like during some of this talk about the National Space Council and a shift in direction um, Mars is now the horizon goal that was the the term everyone we talked to used Mars is the horizon goal that there was some some people felt tense in the room. And again, I don't know if that's actually true or if that's just how I, how I felt uh, or, you know, but this big shift means some things, right? It means that journey to Mars is sort of secondary. I get the sense. Um, and I, I want to see what you think about this. I get the sense that where NASA is with their programs, with the SLS and with the, with the deep space gateway and with these other things, that the work they have been doing for Mars, none of it, or at worst case, very little of it is actually wasted at this point shifting to the moon. That through a combination of things that the moon and Mars kind of need similar things in a lot of ways, um, combined with they're not real far down the road of some of these things. So the Deep Space Gateway is not 
anywhere close to being a reality. The SLS is, it's getting there. Orion is getting there, but like they're, they're like, unless I just have missed it, there has not been a lot of talk about a lander, like going from, the, you know, going from orbit around the moon to those last 60 miles going down. Right. A lot of these pieces aren't here yet. And so I think all that together means that a shift while maybe frustrating to some is actually not a big blow in terms of, well, we did all this work and now we have to shelve it and rethink it because we're going to the moon. Do you, does that, do you get that sense as well? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think this is a conversation that we're going to have to have in more detail in a future episode, but I do, I think um, the idea here is that we have to do a certain set of things before we're capable of going to Mars with crewed missions and the moon is much closer. So, practice some of this stuff in a you know out of low get out of low earth orbit practice some of this stuff in uh cislunar space or in lunar orbit um the moon is still really interesting and landing people on the moon again is uh something that should probably happen um i can see the argument that it is by pushing mars to the horizon what you're doing is you're pushing off by decades uh again human uh, landing on Mars, which would be a great accomplishment. I go back and forth about whether this is um, kind of uh, realistic and pragmatic while mm-hmm. also being, um, you know, less exciting, uh, because you could argue that we could go to Mars soon, but would we be able, would it be like the moon landing? Would we be able to go down and say, yes, we got people here somehow and we landed them and now they come back and that's it. And with the moon program that it's being discussed, you get the sense, and this goes back to what I was saying about the resource prospector earlier, you get the sense that there's kind of a bigger idea happening here in terms of, uh, you know, we went to check out the moon and say we went there. This time we're going back kind of to stay like right. we've, we, we've spent 20 years or whatever in low earth orbit and and the next 20 years is going to be sending stuff to the moon, landing people on the moon, doing lots of stuff on the moon, because that's something that technologically is more within our grasp to kind of master. Whereas sending somebody to Mars is going to be this expeditionary mission that it's not we're not going to hang out there. Now, Elon Musk thinks we are. But, you know, the argument is that maybe a lot of this stuff we can get good at in our neighborhood Mm -hmm. at the moon and then apply all of that to send a a platform around Mars that has people on it and use the, you know, and, and, and go from there. I can see both sides of it. I can see the argument like, why are we even messing with the moon? Let's go to Mars. But Mars is very far away. Uh, there's a lot of things we have to learn about getting out of low, low Earth orbit and out of the radiation uh, protection that the Earth provides and how that all works. And, uh, you know, you could do a lot of that, I think, in cislunar space and in lunar orbit rather than just sending some people off to Mars and when the, when that's done saying, you know, yay, we did that. I do, the cynic in me says, this is also in part because um, they want to see, they want to win. Like they want a win for people like we were saying about the PR aspect earlier of, of things like what Elon Musk is doing, that if you have a, a moon base in 10 years, that's something people can see and like, lay. we went back to the moon and we got a moon base and we got people with live high def video coming from the surface of the moon. And there's a building down there now, and it's not just driving around on rovers and we've got a bunch of other stuff going on like that, that 
that is something that you can make happen a lot sooner than you can send somebody to Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder, how, however, if what this is also going to do is make Elon Musk start to think that he may want to, you know, take some of his his SpaceX money and start to threaten to just go to Mars anyway, <laughs> which yeah. could be really weird. But we'll see. We'll see it when we get there. I mean, the I, I think there's a possibility that if Elon Musk provides the tools to get people to Mars, that that may change the equation. And the bottom line is, for the last 15 years, every presidential administration has changed the policy about the moon and Mars. And and part of me thinks if you can start going start building the pieces that could get you to the moon or mars then that's good because then we're rolling and if somebody wants to change direction later and say yeah you know what we're going to take all these pieces we're going to go to mars instead then at least the pieces are there yeah no i think i think that i think the idea that spacex would leapfrog would be really interesting And, and a scenario that i thought about kind of during this talk of like well just because nasa is focusing on the moon and SpaceX, you know, would be involved. We're going to talk about it. there's lots of commercial opportunities there, but that doesn't mean they also can't be doing things like Red Dragon or you know, Mars missions. That, that's right. And then it could end up being a really weird situation where, um, not to say that Elon Musk would shake down the U.S. government for money, but he could say, you know, we're capable of landing somebody on Mars now, and uh, you probably want it to be NASA astronauts. So we, let's talk. Right, because he could also get paid by I don't know another country <laughs> oh, <laughs> to yeah. put their people on Mars or something like that, and uh, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see if if uh, if some of these commercial companies could actually kind of steer NASA in different directions because this is this is one of the interesting dynamics here is like what do the commercial companies want to do, what is NASA capable of doing, and where does the uh, where does the government want to take this? And we should we should say. Again, this is the administration's budget proposal. Um, most NASA budgets recently have been overrided by Congress and have not been what was proposed by the president. And even though this is now a Republican president, it's probably going to be the same way because a lot of the stuff in this budget is not a something that Congress is really thrilled about, the people in Congress. So that remains to be seen. So there's that part of it, too. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about the budget, 10.5 billion of it is for exploration, all the stuff we just talked about, um, SLS manufacturing and testing, deep space gateway, which is now called the lunar orbiting platform dash gateway, I think, which is really super weird. Like deep space gateway is a better, better name. Supposed to launch in 2022. Uh, I guess they better get cracking. Let's just call it the moon base. Moon base. I think that means it's on the moon. All right. Okay. All right. Moon station. There you go. Moon lunar 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 station LS. Let's do it. Uh in this time period moving beyond low earth orbit um to stimulate commercial work the goal is to transfer primary funding responsibility of the International Space Station away from the federal government in 2025. Yeah. This may Con- include private stations or you know, a company flying up a module and bolting it on, some company taking over the space station as it is, somebody yeah. breaking it apart. No, nope. a, 
Lots a lot of, of skepticism in Congress for yes. defunding the International Space Station. And I can see the arguments for, like, let's stop spending money on the ISS and start spending money on the moon station, right? I can see those arguments, but there are a lot of people in Congress who are like, why would we? We've spent all this money putting it up there. Let's keep it rolling. It's valuable. Um and how realistic is it that uh, industry is going to, you know, plop down $3 billion for ISS? It yeah. seems unlikely. Yeah. And then um, lots of technology. So stuff you were kind of talking about with that, uh, that Explorer. Resource prospector. Resource yeah. prospector. Um, lots of technology stuff going on as well. $5.5 billion for sciences, including sample return missions. Uh, there's one going on now with OSIRIS-REx, but uh, um, a Mars sample return mission, robotic solar system exploration, Mars 2020 rover, the Europa Clipper. Right, but not the Europa Lander, which is the no. thing that the Congress keeps putting back in the budget. Yeah, I don't because, think it's gone. I think it'll yeah. come right back. Um, ending some Earth science missions. A lot of this was in last year's budget. That hasn't changed. Um, but I think the thing that got the most, at least kind of the immediate outcry, was um, cancellation of a new – well, it's in development and <laughs> crazy over budget, which is part of the part of this conversation – of uh, a new space telescope called uh, WFIRST. Right. The Wide Field, Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. You know how much I love acronyms. Um, and this was for the, the decadal survey where they basically once a decade, they ask the consensus of scientists about what the space priority should be. Literally, this is number one on the list. Um, this, this is a next generation space telescope designed to study dark energy, dark matter and exoplanets. So it's the key uh, things that we want to study, that scientists want to learn about, this would be the tool to do it. It was number one on the decadal survey. And this budget says, nah. Forget it. Yeah. It's... I read one thing that this may be a signal, because this budget doesn't take effect immediately, that this may just be a warning shot of, hey, get your budget under control. But right. um, there's a lot of scientists, uh, including some friends of ours, who are very skeptical that that's the case and that this thing may actually be actually be canceled, which... Yeah. Um, and from it a would, PR standpoint, again, I, I not to not to overly slag this budget, but um, I get the feeling from this entire budget that this is uh, all about the stuff with the best optics, which is going to be exploration. So, like planetary science, we want Mars rovers, we want Europa flybys, you know, a telescope that's in the infrared that's going to have these esoteric things that it might learn is less exciting. And also it's got budget overruns, which I totally understand being less enthusiastic about, but it just, it, my gut feeling is like stuff that doesn't play well with the general public is a harder sell. And that may have always been the case. It definitely feels the case here though, that this is like W first is a lot more esoteric, but like, based on what we talk about, like exoplanets, dark energy, like these are key questions that scientists are puzzled about that we need better instruments to help understand. And WFIRST is designed for that. So like it's exactly the mission that scientists think we should be doing. Uh, and so to have it be singled out like this, well, again, we'll see about Congress because who knows? Congress tends to, uh, and this has been the case for a while now, Congress tends to ignore the administration's budget for NASA. <laughs> so we'll see. 
Uh, let's see. What else should we should we mention here before we close? Um, money set aside for cybersecurity, uh, replacing older facilities with more, new, more efficient ones. At least at Marshall, a lot of those buildings we, uh, that we were in are Apollo era, if not older. And so agency is slowly replacing some of those with buildings that are uh, more efficient. And and life sort of closed it down with how NASA views, you know, 2030. So if we come back, I guess, in 12 years, crews and, you know, crews working around the moon, on the moon, commercial platforms in low Earth orbit, the SLS is making regular trips to whatever the Deep Space Gateway is called at that point, lunar scouting, Martian sample return, uh, working on oxygen creation for Mars, uh... He didn't mention the lander here at the end, that that would be on the horizon after the clipper. Um, so maybe he knows, too, that it, it, is, uh, it is an undead mm-hmm. program. James Webb finding exoplanets, supersonic jets, dreams, clouds, rainbows. Very optimistic take, yes. uh, which is part of the job of this. Part of the job. Uh, especially if you're talking to some people who just had their missions changed or potentially canceled. Uh, you need to end on what this budget uh, would allow for. I'm just not sold that the budget actually allows for all of this. Yeah, and look, this the way these budgets are put together, and you and I had a little conversation uh, on this uh, a couple of days ago, it, it definitely is, to a certain degree, it's pleasing the boss. And in this case, it's an acting administrator because there is still no NASA administrator. It's two straight years of the state of NASA being given by an acting administrator because although uh, the president has nominated somebody, he has not received a hearing and has not been confirmed to the post. And it's unclear when that will happen. I think that's another fascinating bit of adversarial relationship potentially between um, between Congress and the administration about space policy. But still, you know, you're pleasing the boss here. And I think in some ways I could see some signs in this budget of, you know, how do you talk about this and how do you sell it to make it seem like something that the boss will be excited about when what you're also doing is providing cover for the stuff that you're able to protect. And I just I got a real strong vibe that that's what this is, is, you know, you're navigating from the person who's going to have to approve this thing. You know, and I'm not just saying that's the president, but it's somebody who works in the White House, somebody who works with the administration. It could be the vice president. It could be somebody else. Um, You want to uh, push the stuff that is going to get them excited and. Uh, not push the stuff that's not going to get them excited. And that's just, that's managing up. <laughs> you know, that's a thing that you do if you've got a boss who is in charge of the purse strings and you're trying to get, protect the stuff that you think is the most important. Sometimes this is what you end up doing. And I just got a strong feeling about that. Um, the funny thing is, of course, that the president is not actually the boss because the the Congress makes the budget and generally ignores the president. So I think that may happen again here because they have very strong on the science committee, uh, science subcommittee of the House of Representatives, some very strong-willed people who, as we've talked about before, are insistent on things like a Europa lander. And they keep over, they kept overfunding NASA over what the Obama administration wanted. Um, I imagine something like that will probably continue to happen. And it's funny that we're in this position, but we continue to be in it where you end up rooting for Congress to... Um, to do stuff that the administration is not willing to do for NASA. So we'll see what happens there because it may this may be the budget or it may be completely different. And uh, we just don't know because, in fact, the other thing we didn't even mention is this year's budget is last year's budget 
because the budget was never approved. So it's continuing the old budget. So it's also possible that this will go nowhere. But uh, if it does go somewhere, it will be, you know, the result of huge federal budget negotiations and uh, and that between all the parties involved and uh, and then we'll see what we get. But it's also possible that like last year, nothing will happen and they'll just sort of keep going on with the existing funding. Yeah. So we'll see. At the very least, the budget shows what the administration would want to see. Right. It's it's. Yes, it's their priorities, uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, filtered through an acting administrator who is trying to put the best spin on it. Um, weird weird situation. Weird situation. Say what we will about the qualifications of the potential nominee for a NASA administrator. And also there's a number two position that also must be nominated that mm-hmm. hasn't even been floated yet. Um, but having none <laughs> is a difficult position for NASA to be in, that they only have an acting administrator. Yeah. I think that does it. Yeah, we did a mega, mega episode of Lift Up. It's so much to talk about, and I feel like we could have gone on about more, but, you know, we're, 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 we're breaking records for the length of this episode. So we'll be back in two weeks, and we'll be able to talk a lot more about um, what's going on in space, what's maybe going on with the, uh, the politics of all of this. Uh, maybe, we'll get a, maybe we'll get a fun guest in. We've got a lot going on, a lot, of, a lot in the hopper, but uh, we did get through our mega NASA episode. So that's good. I hope people enjoyed it. Yeah. If you want to uh, find show notes to all this stuff, you can find them on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 66. Probably also in the app you're using uh, to listen to this podcast. You can check them out there as well. If you want to get in touch, you can send us uh, an email. There's a link in the sidebar on that page. Or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason as J Snell, J S N E L. And you can find me there as I S M H. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.